<clears throat> okay, let me pray for a moment. I've got to pray for my voice, pray for focus here. God, as we open your word, as we move into this topic that is so consequential, the topic of debt, would you pour wisdom and discernment into us? Teach us to walk in your ways. Um, may this message be convicting in a way that is constructive and life-giving. Help us, God, and strengthen my voice for this task. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are moving through a series, Faith and Finances, and we are learning how to access God's wisdom and power, guidance, and his provision. Because he offers those things to us, but our role is to cooperate with that and not simply live life on our own terms and then invoke God's blessing on how we see fit to live. And what we want to do is grow in our capacity to be people whose finances are characterized by consistently avoiding debt and giving generously and saving prudently and spending strategically. Those are kind of the four key ingredients that will help us build and maintain financial health and strength in a way that honors God and allows blessing to flow into our lives, flow out of our lives to those around us. But as I talked about last week, this requires more than just deciding to do a budget. It requires more than just financial, a new financial skill set. It actually requires a deeply spiritual examination of what are the sins, maybe it's one of those seven deadly sins we talked about last week, that are actually fueling the financial chaos. Because if we don't understand the root of our problem, we actually bypass a really important step, which is to confess to God that we are empowered, enslaved, to a sin that is causing all kinds of misuse and abuse of what God has entrusted to us. So we need to learn and lean into spiritual practices that help us to identify and confess and turn from ways of misusing what God has entrusted to us and start doing the things that God tells us to do, right? That's like Abigail's teaching. It's not enough to simply know what God says. If we don't follow through on it, we're still building on sand. That's why it's very possible to be a Christian for 5, 10, 20, 30 years and experience no transformation in your finances or any other area of your life. Because you can come to church, you can download stuff, you can read stuff, you can do a daily devotional, you can pray, you can do a lot of things. But if you don't apply what you're learning and seek to obey and honor God, you're still building your life on sand. And it's very, very, very vulnerable. This morning, I want to talk about the biblical value of avoiding debt. Let's have a, a trivia question. When was the first credit card invented? Anyone know? I think that, I'm looking for a specific year. No, 1925. No, a little bit later. Wendy? Uh, 54 is very close. It was actually, they say it was 1950, where in America, the Diners Club card was the first what they called charge card that allowed you to purchase things. In his book, Simple Money, Rich Life by Bob Lodich, which is one of the resources I would recommend. It's a very, very good comprehensive um, book on finances from a Christian worldview. I'll talk about some of those resources later. He says, 
before the credit card's introduction, people borrowed money usually for only one of two things, a home or a car. And they were limited even in that borrowing because you could only get a loan from the merchant supplying the particular item that you wanted. But then in the 1950s, banks began a credit experiment. And it started with the question, what if we could lend people money to buy whatever they wanted? And this is the result. Total household, uh, uh, well, total national debt. This is just America, but it plays across uh, any Western country. So almost no debt. In 1950, slow increase, and then starting around <clears throat> the 2000s, which also coincided with about the time that the internet was becoming ubiquitous, massive spike, bit of a dip in the financial collapse in the States around 2008. That also coincided with the rise of the ubiquity of the smartphone, massive spike again. So that's about to 2017. <clears throat> Bob Lodich reflects on this trend and offers the following insight. He says, it's really easy to look at credit cards as the most destructive piece of this very easy credit experiment. But he says, I don't believe credit cards are the most damaging part. I actually think the most damage, destructive result of this experiment is much more subtle. And that is the implicit messaging that debt is normal that taking on massive amounts of debt in the 21st century is just what you have to do. And he says the danger in this simple little lie is that if debt is normal, something everybody does, then debt also becomes necessary. But that was never God's intention for his people. After God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, begins forming them into his people, but also a nation that are given all kinds of laws, including financial laws, about how they are to conduct themselves individually, as households, as a community, and as a nation. He gives an interesting instruction twice in the book of Deuteronomy before the Israelites are going into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 15.6, he says, the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. <clears throat> and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. <clears throat> and then a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 28, God says, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. What financial command gets repeated to the nation of Israel? You shall not borrow. That's a command, not a suggestion. You can lend, you don't borrow. So right away we're seeing the seeding of a very important principle, a very high value for God, which is that his people do not go into debt. They do not make themselves economically vulnerable, in this case, to any other nation. And notice why. In Deuteronomy 15.6, God says, because 
you are to rule over the other nations, they are not to rule over you. And the implication is that to be indebted to someone is to enter into servitude before them, that they are your master. Proverbs 22.7, if you've been in church and talked about finances, this has definitely come up. This is a key, succinct summation of what God values. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. God says, if you owe someone money, there is a sense in which you are enslaved to them. And this fundamental understanding of debt helps us to make sense of the three high-level takeaways that the Bible, in ways big and small, continually reinforces about debt. And I want to talk through each of those this morning. Number one, because debt enslaves, we should avoid it whenever possible. Now, I live in our culture. I, I see all the ways in which we are invited to take on debt. Student loans, car loans, mortgages, multiple credit cards, store cards, uh, furnishing or electronic stores. And the ease at which credit is offered in online shopping. I was buying something on Amazon, or I was buying something online the other day, and it was like $60, and I got a pop-up saying like, oh, do you want to like break that up into four payments? And it's like $14.98. It's just that it, the invitation into debt finds you. You don't have to go seeking for it. And before you know it, people can find themselves in a debt spiral and up to their ears and obligations. But the Bible warns us to be very, very careful about taking on any debt because it introduces financial risk. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Sometimes that risk is strategic and wise. In the case of investing in a home that has a reasonable mortgage rate, uh, a wise business startup plan, a startup loan, or maybe a student loan that allows you to invest in yourself. When we leverage debt in order to build wealth or build our capacity to build wealth, that can be wise. But a lot of the debt we take on is avoidable and not strategic and not wise and actually digs us into a hole. And the Bible is even more forceful in its language. It actually enslaves us. So we should avoid it whenever possible. And number two, because debt is a heavy burden, if we have to go into debt, we should minimize it as much as possible. Those who fall into debt carry a heavy burden. I've had times in my life where I'm outside of a mortgage uh, debt-free. I've had times where I've had lots of uh, debt because of different decisions that uh, I've made, we've made as a family, mistakes that we've made, or just emergencies that have happened. And living with that debt load, even if it's relatively small, is a burden that you carry all the time. And it just begins as a financial burden, but it can sort of metastasize quickly and grow into an emotional and a relational burden. We can lose sleep, we can carry around unnecessary stress, we can have our mind, um, new worries constantly gnawing at the edge of our attention. Debt really does interfere with our ability to live into the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
gentleness, goodness. Those are hard things to abide in and live from when debt is chewing away at your mind and heart. Debt limits your ability in the rest of your budget to spend money the way you'd like, to give the way you'd like, to save the way that you might need to. It's a massive limiting factor. Many marriages grow cold, then distant, then sometimes even irreconcilable because of poor financial decisions that lead to indebtedness. Bob Lodich writes, when someone lends you money, they are taking some of your autonomy. They are taking a piece of your freedom. You are now bound to them in something that correlates to a master-slave relationship. And that won't be resolved until the debt is paid in full. I think it's Dave Ramsey who says that's why they call it MasterCard. Right? It's not servant card. It doesn't actually serve you. So if you need to incur debt, and in our modern world, I would argue it's absolutely necessary at key decision points in your life, it's very important to be very sober and very careful to minimize the amount of debt that you're taking on. And that's because, number three, because debt is a promise that you have made to someone else, you are obligated to repay it as a Christian. As Christians, we have to be true to our word. And that means your debts need to be repaid. You entered into an ag agreement of trust that says, I will withdraw this money, I will pay it back according to this schedule or this time frame. That's an obligation that we shouldn't walk away from. The book of Proverbs, or sorry, um, Psalm 37 says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. It's actually a wicked thing in God's eyes to borrow with either no intention to give back or to put yourself in a position where you can't. Repaying debts is an important way that we maintain our integrity and our witness to other people and honor God. So here's a high-level summary. Debt is not always wrong. It's not always sinful, especially when it's done strategically and wisely with good counsel and you've done your homework and you've got a plan. But in most cases, it is inadvisable. So we should avoid debt whenever possible. If we have to go into debt, we should minimize the amount that we go into debt for, because it enslaves, because it limits so much of our life, and so that we can repay our debts as early as possible, at the earliest opportunity. Because one of the things that God values is a people financially free of debt obligations. Because if you have no debt, you have an enormous scope of psychological, relational, emotional, and financial freedom that you can, in an unhindered way, live into God's values and the things that God has set on your heart are deeply important 
to you, your sense of calling. So let me just talk about two things of how to get yourself out of debt. I'm going to put a lot of resources on tackling debt in next Friday's Summit newsletter. You can scan through them and many of you have, I've, I've begged and borrowed some resources from some of you. So thanks for that. And some of those are going to come up. Um, but there's two broad things we need to do. There's lots of great resources. I'll front end some of those. But there's two steps that you really need to take to get out of debt. debt. The first is you got to get real with yourself. You got to stop the bleeding. You just got to confront one of those seven deadly sins or maybe uh, multiplicity of them that are feeding this overspending, this habitual going into debt, this minimization of like, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It's $50 here. It's $200 here. I see, I talk to my friends. They, they, they seem to be comfortable carrying a $12,000 limit, you know, stuff in their credit cards. I don't know. Maybe it's not a big deal. Stop the bleeding. Stop going into debt. Take immediate decisive action and ask God for help in that area. Whether it's pride that's driving the indebtedness, whether it's envy, whether it's lust, whether it's gluttony, whether it's slothfulness, bring it to God and say, God, I know your will for my life is to be debt-free. Your will for our marriage, your will for our family is to be debt-free. I don't know all the steps, but I, I want to commit this to you. Please help me. And root out this deep sin that as I consider it, I realize it is just enslaving me and pulling me into a spiral of debt. I need deliverance from it. I need salvation from it. And then the second sort of broad principle is you want to enter into some kind of a practice where you are doing a debt snowball. And this is probably the most effective way to tackle your debt. You list your debts. You look at your, you start making minimum payments to all your debts. You look at your smallest debt load and you start making extra payments into that. So you've got like 500 here, you've got like 2,500 here, you've got 10,000 here, and then you've got, you know, take the 500. I'm making minimum payments to all of them. I'm, I'm taking the 500 and I'm going to start making that, uh, you know, add extra payments, 600. Make sacrifices, my spending here, and overpay. And then when that smaller loan debt gets paid off, I take that $600 that I was putting towards that debt and I say, sweet, now I can spend that $600. No, that's wrong. That's not what you do. You snowball it. You say, that $600 is spoken for. That now gets shifted into the next debt, next lowest debt load. Now, why are you starting with the lowest? Does anyone know why you would start with the lowest? Some would say, well, if you've got this huge debt, maybe you should tackle that one first. Or, or, or even the one with the highest interest. That's not the council. The council is almost always the smallest amount of debt. Why do we want to start there? Wendy? Yep, absolutely. Even if it is mathematically more efficient to not start with the smallest, it is way more sustainable and psychologically beneficial to say, I had five debts and now six months later, I only have four. I'm making progress. It's emotionally satisfying. It builds a sense of accomplishment and literal momentum. I'm paying $150 on this. That's done now off my table. Now I'm adding that $150 to this payment. Now a year and a half later, that's off my table. Smaller steps that build momentum are better than long, large steps that take years to accomplish. So start with the debt snowball. I'll put that graphic in the summit next Friday. There'll be some other things, but those are the two things. Get real with God. 
commit it to God, stop the bleeding, and then just list your debts, be honest about it, start with the smallest one and start the debt snowball method. Now there's a third way to get out of debt. I didn't list it as a two, but there's a third way. And that is, pray for someone to come along and cancel your debt, pay your debt for you, right? That is legit. Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask. So, and I've been a pastor long enough that I've heard, I've heard stories like that. Wouldn't that be amazing if you think about it? Wouldn't it be amazing if you just got a stack of letters from your creditors that were a final notice that your balance owing was zero? And you're just like, what? And then you find out maybe a family member or a friend or someone in the church or just a random stranger realized the debt load that you were carrying, the way that was limiting and enslaving you, and really for no benefit to themselves, paid your debt. And then said, God bless you. I've been carrying debt. I know what it's like to carry this kind of debt. It's awful. It's suffocating. It sucks the life out of you. I want to bless you or your marriage or your family with freedom. Here you go. All the best. Don't want to hear about it again. Go live in freedom. Go live into the things that matter most. The only thing that would be more amazing is if the people that you owed the money to were the ones that would pay your debt. Like if MasterCard or the bank said, hey, we've just decided to pay your debt. Now they wouldn't pay the debt because you can't pay money that's owed to them. But what they would say is they'd say, we've canceled the debt or we've forgiven the debt. You owed us this much. We've just made a unilateral decision. We're canceling that debt, which means we're incurring the cost and you get to walk away and freedom with a new lease on life. Like, wouldn't that be freaking amazing? Like you would come to church on Sunday. You, you would raise your hands. Like you absolutely would. You would. I know some of you are like, I don't really raise my hands in church ever. Maybe like this. You would raise your both hands up. You'd be bouncing. You'd be front row. That would be amazing. You wouldn't, you would want to share that news with so many people. It would be awesome. To have one's debt load forgiven, it would change the trajectory of your life. And it's for that reason that Jesus very intentionally counsels his disciples when they ask him, how should we pray? He says, you pray like this. Would you forgive us our debts? as we forgive our debtors. See, it's not the whole picture, but part of what we're seeing when Jesus drags that cross to Golgotha and is nailed to it and is suspended above the earth is we are seeing God coming to cancel our debt. We are seeing God coming to cancel and pay the debt that we have incurred from our wrongdoing. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When you sin, when you sin death and sin are owed something. 
God says, I will pay Jeff's debt owed to sin. Jesus steps in our place, not because we deserve it, but because God so values us and so loves us in spite of the fact that we were living, ignoring him, rejecting him, minimizing his significance, glorying in ourselves and in our own priorities instead of him and his priorities. And because God loves and values us so much, and he doesn't want us to live with a sin debt that enslaves us both in this life and condemns us in the next, he says, I will go, I will absorb the debt. So that those who come to me and ask for that exchange, ask for forgiveness, ask for grace, I will gift them with eternal life. It will start right now in this life, I'll put my spirit in them, and then it will carry on forever until I um, redeem and restore a new heavens and a new earth, and then open up a whole new chapter of reality. God's will for us is to live debt-free. Debt-free in our finances, yep, but also free from our sin debt. Free from all the ways that sin's power at work in us can suffocate and choke out the life that God wants to bring forward. But what's amazing about God is that instead of demanding that we pay back the debt that we owe, in kind of this karmic system, he says, I'll come and pay the debt on their behalf. And then I'll release them and I'll invite them out of their own Egypt, their own enslavement, and I'll say, now I want you to follow me. I want to show you the kind of life that I intended you to live. You know what life is like in Egypt. You know what enslavement feels like. I want to show you what freedom feels like. I want to show you what it feels like to walk inside of my power and my provision. And it's going to feel lighter. It's going to feel more expansive, more spacious. And it will be a road that in terms of experiencing blessing and richness will just be an ever-expanding one. Will you come to me? In a moment, I'm going to invite um, Rick up and we'll prepare for a time of communion. And we'll do it like we normally do. We'll, um, I'll do the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 and then we'll play a worship video. And then as you're uh, ready, you can come forward and take a, receive a piece of the bread and take a piece of the juice and a piece of the juice cup. And then return to your seats and uh, just take a moment to pray and receive um, that sacramental sign of Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. But as you do it this morning, even before you come forward, um, just pause in recognition and gratitude and thankfulness that says, I actually don't have to labor. I don't have to live life under a sin debt, under shame and guilt and spiritual suffocation. God has come to free me from those things. And God is inviting me to live debt-free in every dimension of my life so that his power can be at work in me 
in successively more expansive and beautiful and redemptive ways. And all of that is opened up to me as a gift, not as a reward for religiosity or religious service or church attendance or tithing or reading your Bible or straightening yourself out. None of that. We can't earn it as a reward. It's offered as a gift. And so as you come forward to receive the bread and the juice, receive it as such and give thanks. Rick, why don't you uh, come up?